On today's episode of Dance Med Spotlight, I'm speaking with Jennifer Milner. She is a Pilates trainer, movement specialist, and ballet coach, owner of Bodies in Motion, a former ballet and Broadway dancer. She also works with some amazing organizations, among which are Bendy Bodies and Minding the Gap. In today's episode, as usual, we talk about a lot of different topics. This time we're talking about things like hypermobility, training for dancers outside of the dance studio and what that looks like, mental health for dancers, including creating more mental health positive spaces for them to work in and how we support that even as a dance teacher or dance educator working with them. We also talk about the importance of how we sort of as dance medicine professionals can grow our skill set, our knowledge, our Rolodex of folks that we work with to better support our dancers. We talk about all of this and more in today's episode, so be sure to check it out. Welcome back to another episode of Dance Med Spotlight, where we talk about all things dance medicine and dance science. Today, I have a fabulous guest with me. Uh, She is a Pilates trainer, movement specialist, ballet coach, owner of Bodies in Motion, and involved in a million other things I know. Welcome, Jennifer Milner. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to, uh, to get to chat with you for a while. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. My first question that I always ask everybody is give us, I guess, sort of the short story version of what got you to this point of wanting to have a career as a health and wellness professional within the realm of dance. Um, Well, there are no short stories, right? (laughs) Because everybody's journey is different. Um, And that's one of the things I love about about meeting people people like you and, and me. Um, but I was a professional dancer. And actually as a professional dancer, I swore I would never teach um, because I had too much respect for teachers and people who were doing that uh, full time as their job. Um, I thought that teachers sort of fell into two categories, either the people who were teaching because they didn't know what else to do with their lives or um, the people who really felt like they had information to pass on and wanted to develop and grow the next generation of dancers. Um, and it was no shade on the people who didn't know what else to do, but that's how they could make money. I just knew I didn't want to be that person because I had had really great experiences with dance teachers and I had had really horrible experiences with teachers as well. And so I always thought that's that's not going to be me. Um, but as a professional dancer, I got into Pilates um, after an injury. And we'll use that to come back from that injury and dance some more. And then I had an injury that was kind of, that was career ending and uh, became Pilates certified as I was sort of trying to get through that process um, just as something to fall back on. And turned out that I really enjoyed it when I had to quit. Um, I promised I would never go back to the dance world again. It was too painful. It was too difficult. Um, but uh, Marika Molnar at Westside Dance, which is where I had been rehabbing, they're the, they were the PT clinic for New York City Ballet. She, um, she asked me to come in and work with some dancers. And I did and realized, wow, I really enjoy this. I enjoy passing on what I learned from my injuries to these mm-hmm. dancers and how they can move forward better than they were before their injuries. Um, and so that really kind of started the ball rolling and I worked there full time and um, eventually moved to, to Dallas and uh, and have my, my own place now. So that's, that's the short story. <laughs> 
Wonderful. And I think, I think there's so much in that story where, I mean, I think it's part of a lot of our stories of maybe we were an injured dancer or, you know, wanted somebody who was able to help us felt like there was a gap in resources available for us. Mm. Or sometimes the story of I had a really great connection and I wanted to continue that for people in the future too. So we kind of see both sides of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is what is moving the dance world forward um, is the people who finish dancing and say, and now I would like to do this. And now plus also I want to do that. Right. And I see that mm -hmm. time and time again in my dancers that I train who who choose not to go into a professional career after a pre-pro career or who do a pre-pro career and then retire um, and become a dance PT, for example. I love I love seeing them going, wow, this was so beneficial. I want to help others. Yes, exactly. I know you're also involved in a variety of different organizations, including ones like Bendy Bodies and being on the advisory board for Minding the Gap. Tell us a little bit about some of those different organizations. Well, um, I am very attracted to people that are smarter than I am and <laughs> who can make me smarter and make me look good just by being in the room with them. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I, I love being part of something bigger than myself. Uh, I find that it really helps me grow as a teacher and as a mentor and, and as a human too. So I'm always interested in collaborating and working with other groups. Bendy Bodies, um, I found Dr. Linda Bluestein, who's the hypermobility MD, who's amazing. Um, when I was researching some um, EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, uh, issues for one of my dancers, and I found a paper that she had co-authored and had some questions and just emailed her and was like, hey, you don't know me, but what about this? And what about that? And she was like, these are great questions. And so she called me and we had a huge long chat, ended up presenting together for um, IADAMS, International Association of Dance Medicine and Science in uh, Montreal in 2019. And then at the airport on the way back, she was like, hey, we should do some podcasts together. And she had already started Hypermo uh, Hypermobile Happy Hour and was building, just building the Bendy Bodies podcast. And so we we built that from the ground up and I was lucky enough to go along for the ride with that. It's definitely been her baby, um, but it's dedicated to working with dancers who have hypermobility and are trying to deal with some of the issues that come with it. Um, I am hypermobile, I have a hypermobility disorder. I didn't realize that till pretty late in my career. And all of those things that make you go, I don't know, um, I just guess that's normal. And then you find out, oh, that's not normal. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wish somebody had told me. I, I feel so much better now knowing that that's an actual issue and I'm having to deal with it. Um, so it's really comforting to get more information about those things. And so we want to, and that's why, why we started it, is to get that information out there to dancers and to healthcare practitioners and to physical therapists and to trainers to say, hey, this is a thing. It's okay not to know everything. We're going to give you some more information on how um, to make it easier for you to try to get help, to try to get information. So Bendy Bodies is a huge um has a huge piece of my heart because it's helped so many dancers already um, and is is always going to be like really, really close to my heart because of how much it was a part of my story as well as a dancer. Sure. And then Mining the Gap um, is an organization dedicated to making uh, mental health support for dancers just as important and 
talked about and available as physical health support for dancers. And it was founded by Kathleen McGuire Gaines, um, who wrote uh, a paper that really rocked the world, I think in 2017, about mental health for the dance world. And she wrote it in a Dance Magazine. And um, the re reverberations were profound. And she realized there were a lot of people out there who, who needed help and support. So she founded Minding the Gap. I found it and was like, hey, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> we need to do that. Plus also, um, and so I pretty much just shoved my way into mining the gap mm -hmm. and said, I want to be part of this. I want to help you. Uh, and we started developing and writing workshops for um, dance teachers and studio owners and artistic staff to really help them understand how to better support dancers' mental health and to give them practical tools to do that. Um, so that holds another huge uh, piece of my heart as well. So I really I like to get involved in things that you know are meaningful to me. And um, if you have such a project, I will probably like just force my way in. <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> yeah, I think, and so both of those are such important things. We'll talk about both of them a little bit, but. Um, you know, knowing that there are those resources available, I think when you think about a lot of the dance medicine, dance science stuff, it's still relatively new on the scene compared to how long dance has been around and how long it's been a profession that you can pursue and all of these kinds of things. And so having better access to all of this information for all of the people involved at all of the different levels, whether it's artistic directors and studio owners supporting dancers that they're working with, kids who are training and want to, you know, do future training, maybe work as a professional someday, everywhere in between, having those resources and having that understanding is critical. Yeah, it really is. And it's not something that I realized going through my journey because I was very fortunate to have my career ending injury. Um, I was living in New York. And so I was able to rehab with Westside Dance and, you know, Marika Molnar is the founder of dance medicine, basically mother of dance medicine. Uh, and New York City Ballet was the first company to have uh, physical therapy full time on staff for them. And so she's been doing this since the mid 80s. Um, and so to be able to rehab there with her and then to be able to work with her and learn from her was fantastic. But I also had access to um, job job re-education, uh, career transition mm -hmm. for dancers was was big in New York at the time. So I had free access to helping me mentally and physically transition to a different career. I had um, sliding scale access to mental health counselors who understood dancers and were able to help with that as well. And then I was surrounded by other dancers in various stages of their careers. So I never felt alone. I never felt like, how am I going to find someone to help me? Even when I was rehabbing my injury, you know, I had fantastic ballet coaches in New York City available to me to be able to work with. So it was not it was not an issue for me and I was hugely fortunate. Now, the thing that's different between then and now is it's much more pervasive, right? Mm -hmm. And also we have Zoom, yay! So our world has changed for the better in that one respect, thanks to the pandemic, because now dancers from anywhere in the world will have access to healthcare professionals in some form or another, right? Um, mm -hmm. Healthcare professionals may not be able to cross state lines license-wise, but they can do consultations or information sessions or training sessions. Um, and then you can work with ballet coaches anywhere in the world. Uh, it makes me so happy. Elena Kunikova was a, a, a 
one of my ballet teachers and she now trains via Zoom some of my dancers. Mm. And it's just so cool to see that happening um, in such a wide, in such a wide way. So that is really helpful. But I know there are still dancers in small towns and places that are harder to get access to people in person. So Zoom is great Mm -hmm. to an extent but you're still trying to find someone who can give you mental health support or find a studio that is going to give you rigorous and strong technique training and yet be supportive as well. You may only have one choice in studios and it may or may not be a great atmosphere or even great technique wise. So it is a struggle depending on where you're living. And I, and that's one of the big things I think the dance world is working on is how to give access to it. And, and I think a big part of that is educating the dance teachers and getting more information into their hands because they're the front line. You know, the words that they choose, the way they shape their classes, whether they do conditioning or not, whether they find a physical therapist to have on hand in some form or not, that shapes the dancers, how they grow up physically and and mentally. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a big key is getting more information and more tools in the hands of the dance teachers. That's one of the things that I've really fallen in love with is working with the dance teachers and studio Mm -hmm. owners. For example, every year for the last, I don't even know how many years now, I've gone and participated in the Colorado Dance Educators Organization annual conference and have presented there and have gotten to know the dance teachers that are Mm. there. A lot of them are school-based dance programs, but some of them are also studio-based. And they are just so eager to learn information and ask questions and different things like that. Um, And it's it seems like, you know, I love my one-on-one time with my dancers individually, but having that opportunity to get the information in the hands of the dance teachers Mm -hmm. has the chance to touch more people and make a a bigger impact than trying to chip away one at a time with all of it too. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people in our field, you know, our side of the table, um, feel that same way that the work we do with dancers individually is so gratifying, but we also know it's just a drop in the bucket. Um, and as they move forward and move to the uh, administration or artistic side of the table, that's going to help change things. But mm-hmm. until then, they're not, they don't have as much power and they don't have um, as many choices. And so they're still responsible for themselves, but can't change things other than that. And I remember the first time that we did the Minding the Gap workshop, it was, it's a five session seminar. Um, we had over 120 teachers, I think, from around the world that zoomed in. And when we think about 120 teachers who are teaching hundreds of students a year, that's yeah. a huge impact. Mm-hmm. And being able to look at it in that way is really, you're like, oh, wait, now this is going to make a huge difference. This is going to start to change things. So mm-hmm. absolutely, I agree. I think dance teachers and also educating parents yeah. is really going to be <laughs> key in getting yes. a faster change. Yes, most definitely. Let's kind of switch gears a little bit and go back to talking a little bit about hypermobility and hypermobility Mm -hmm. with dance in particular. Um, So, you know, if we look at a lot of the information that's out there, there's kind of a couple different ideas when we're talking about hypermobility, whether it's acquired hypermobility, like someone has just stretched and stretched and stretched, and now things are more bendy and they've made that change. And then there's things where it's more of a genetic component, where that is just how you're born, having some level of hypermobility that looks 
a million different ways, depending on the person in front of you. How do you see some of this presented? Or let's see, how do I want to ask? When a dancer comes in, what are some of the things that you might see that go, hmm, I wonder if this person has some sort of hypermobility that we need to talk about? That's a great question. And um, it's important to remember that hypermobility does not always equal flexibility. So I can have a dancer who cannot put her hands on the floor because she has so, when she bends forward, because she has so much fascial tightness through her lower back, but her shoulders come out of the socket super easily. Her ankles are constantly subluxating. Um, her thumbs and fingers can do super weird things and she's got crazy elbows, right? So on one measure of the scale, she's hypermobile, just looking at the Baton scale, for example. Um, but if you were to look at her, you'd be like, well, she's not very flexible, so she must not be hypermobile. So something that I look for is um, how's their proprioception. And if a dancer comes in and doesn't have great proprioception, that's where I go, hmm, let's dig deeper on this. Uh, and proprioception is just like a very simplification is just your body's awareness of where you are in space. Um, mm -hmm. So it is how you sense where you are in space. And I talk about, um, imagine if you can send a whole bunch of of, of neuroreceptors, a whole bunch of information gatherers to your ankles. And you've got a 5G network from your ankle running to your brain. So it's super fast and super speedy, right? That yeah. ankle is going to be less likely, likely to twist if you step off a curb and you misjudge the distance. So your ankle starts to twist, but you have all these receptors down there going, oh, it's twisting, fix it really fast. And that information quickly travels to your brain and your ankle fixes itself before it goes to a full twist. And if you don't have a lot of a great proprioception, if you don't have a lot of those neuroreceptors, it's more like having the Pony Express between your ankle and your head. So the information doesn't get there as fast. So the body's like, where am I? I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. And so that will look to me if I ask my dancers to close their eyes, they'll fall over very quickly if they're trying to balance. Um, they might, might bump into things like my Pilates machines. They might trip over their feet. Uh, so they might be considered clumsy by their friends. They might gravitate towards a wall or a piece of furniture rather than just being comfortable standing in the middle of space. And when I see that, um, that's when I'll start to dig deeper. Not that you can't have poor proprioception as a dancer without hypermobility, but that will be one of the cues to me um, let's see what else is going on. And then I do, yeah. it's not a great test, but I do the Baton test um, with pretty much every dancer that that comes in just to give me an idea. And then I have other questions that I run through as well. If those give me some sort of a, a heads up. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've started noticing too, is I'm seeing more folks who I think kind of belong in this category with having something hypermobility related. Um, sometimes even the way that they like to sit while mm. they're in my office, like being, mm -hmm. they like to curl up. They can't mm -hmm. just sit sort of in normal posture in a chair. They like to have their legs tucked up with them and be in a little bundle or, you know, just find these things where there's, it almost seems like they just want more sensation yeah. um, and pressure on things as they're sitting. That has been an interesting one to find. Yeah. Or they'll sit with one foot up on the chair like they're afraid they're just going to slide off onto the floor if they don't have that, which may be true, you know, and you'll see them yeah. hugging themselves or they'll stand and lock into all of their joints to help hold them up rather than using their muscles just so they get more sensory feedback. Yeah, that's a that's a great one, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the more I keep learning about it, the more questions I keep having and and 
the desire to keep learning. And I think that's true for all of us when it comes to some of this. Mm -hmm. Well, and with, with hypermobility, there's a much higher incidence of neurodivergency in dancers with hypermobility and neurodivergency is um, just a, a different way than normal of the, your brain working. And uh, neurodivergency could be autism, it could be dyslexia, dysgraphia. So learning disorders are definitely part of that. And mm -hmm. um, if I see a dancer with poor proprioception, I might start checking in, hey, have you ever been tested at school? Do you ever get feedback about how you do in class? And so learning disorders might come up and you'll see that in the way that their body works and reacts. And that helps me figure out how to adjust how I train them and how I teach them and the kind of feedback that they need. And if I start working on things like eye movement really helps uh, for, for a fair amount of neurodivergencies. If I start working on that, I'll see a big change in how they might retain choreography or retain information. Mm -hmm. um, and so finding those little links, if I see this, then I'll ask about this. And if I see that, then I'll ask about that. And then it all starts to fit together. And then I'm sure you've had those moments where the dancers are just so, so happy, almost in tears, that someone is figuring out what's going on with them and giving them answers. Mm -hmm when they thought this is just how I was and this is just how it's going to be. Yeah. And I find too, going along with that idea of, you know, a uh, higher chance or higher likelihood of having some sort of neurodivergency, um, anxiety within mm -hmm. that. Um, I also find digestive issues. Like they say they have fussy tummies. If it's some of my kids or things like that, sensory stuff with eating where they don't mm -hmm. like certain textures and it's hard for them to have fantastic nutrition because they're picky eaters, um, according to a parent or something like that. And so, yeah, there's so many different things that we can kind of see that comes together with this. And if we're able to help get them to the point of figuring some of that out, it's like, oh, I don't have just this long list of problems. There's this one right. thing that's kind of contributing. How do I support all of this now? Right. Well, and we know that dancers with hypermobility are, I think, seven to eight times more likely to deal with uh, mental health issues like anxiety, depression, or OCD. Um, so we can see that. And when we talk about hypermobility, we can talk about just hypermobility at, at its most basic level is just a greater range of motion than normal in a joint. So you can have one shoulder that dislocates and not have a hypermobile disorder throughout your body. So you could have just a few joints that do that, but you can also have um, some sort of a hypermobility disorder that falls under an umbrella of symptomatic joint hypermobility. Um, and that is more about your connective tissue and the quality of that connective tissue. So if you've got that issue, if you've got like the stretchy skin or really loose long ligaments and it becomes more of a whole body thing and not just the way that your joint is shaped, it stands to reason that if your connective tissue is made differently than most people's, you would have stomach issues, right? Because there's connective mm -hmm. tissue all around your whole body, all throughout your viscera. Um, and it would stand to reason that you might have sensory issues because your skin might receive information differently than other people's. So once you figure out one piece of the puzzle, as you said, it all starts to kind of uh, domino and make you go, oh, this, and oh, that, oh, yeah, I do have a weird stomach. And yeah, I do have allergies. And yeah, I do get migraines. And yeah, oh, yeah. And so it's kind of that light bulb, which is why I love working on uh, hypermobility and getting that information out there. So when it's not just one loose joint or just extra range of motion in your joints, when it's a connective tissue issue, then um, it can be throughout the body. 
and that includes our brain, right? So we, mm-hmm. we can expect that to include um, neurodivergency and, and that sort of thing. You had mentioned earlier that you received a hypermobility diagnosis a little later. Mm-hmm. What what was your experience kind of leading up to that? Like what sorts of things were you maybe experiencing in your own body? And then what was that like actually receiving a diagnosis when you did? I never was the super crazy flexible dancer. So it never occurred to me that I was hypermobile. I just thought I was weird because I could take my shoulders out of the side and I would do it like all the time. I'd be like, watch this um, until I couldn't put it back in. <laughs> and then I was like, oh no. So I ended up taking it out of the socket so much I had to have it surgically sewn back in. Mm. Um, you know, so I don't recommend people using their party tricks for party tricks. Um, that's, yes. that's my, my, my PSA right there. But I just dealt with my stuff and I had a few really hypermobile spots in my back, which resulted in most of my back being really tight as a defense mechanism. So I was constantly going back and forth between doctors saying, oh, you have a sprained pelvis or you have this, you know, just like these sort of vague things. And we would fix it and they were like, you just need to build more mobility. And so they would start trying to get me more mobile and it would unlock those places. And then I would lose something again. And no one ever really said, hey, let's figure out how to find stability and Mm -hmm. then unlock what we need to unlock. So I just thought my elbows and my fingers and my shoulders and my multiple ankle sprains were just like random bad luck. And then I had a knee injury and was working with a doctor in New York. And he was like, well, you know, you have a hypermobile disorder, right? And I was like, nope, what are you talking about? And he, uh, who was also a member of Adams, was the first person to say, well, there's this thing and you definitely qualify. Mm. <laughs> and when I heard that, I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. But I never really, it wasn't super life-changing until I started digging more into it after I retired from dancing and started experiencing other dancers with that. And so it was at that point, I was like, wait, this explains my weird allergies. This explains my migraines. This explains this and that. And, and everything just starts to fall in line. And you're like, oh my gosh, this makes life so much more understandable. And that what was, was what pushed me to say, I never want other dancers to have to figure it out for themselves as they're having a professional career or after their professional career. So for my professional career, um, it affected me in that I just had to figure out how to patch myself together and just keep going <laughs> and mm-hmm. never had anyone say, hey, here's this. And I was lucky to find Pilates after a, a mild car crash and the doctor was like, you know, maybe you want to try something like Pilates, which was the best thing ever because it really started giving me stability for my crazy back and, um, and yeah. was life-changing for me and my hypermobility. Mm-hmm. To kind of switch lanes a bit again, early on, we had mentioned hypermobility. We were talking about some mental health stuff. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we maybe see in the dance studio space um, when it comes to mental health and sort of mental health positive techniques or things that we can incorporate. What what sorts of things do you maybe hear from dancers or have experienced yourself as a dancer that either were positive or maybe not so positive? Well, I mean, the negative stories, you know, can go for hours. Um, Mm -hmm. 
teachers using body shaming to try to get you to change how you look or your technique or just to make you feel bad about yourself. Um, the negatives of having a very specific body type in mind for the ballet world and not being um, shy or quiet about telling you what you do or don't have for that and feeling free to say, well, you're never gonna be this or you're never gonna be that or you're too much this or you're not enough that. Um, and it that definitely will eat away at your soul of feeling your, your body and how you look so inextricably mm -hmm. linked to who you are as a dancer. And that's one of the things that I'm really working to separate because your body is your instrument, but it's not the portrait. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're not standing on stage to be looked at and have everybody go, oh, wow, look at those shoulders. Look at that elbow, right? You're using right. that as an instrument to create the art. So it's the art that you create that the audience should be enjoying um, and, and being moved by. And so I, I really want to change that idea of ballerinas have to look a certain way and have to be a certain way. For me, if they can do the choreography that's required of them, if they can do what we ask and if they can do it in a technically excellent and artistically excellent way, then they should be a ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. And I know that that extends to other dance forms, but I do think that it is the most rigorous in the ballet world. Yeah. And so I... I see that. Um, on the flip side, I was lucky to have some dance teachers who were very encouraging and supportive as well, and only made comments about my dance and my technique, and mm -hmm. never said, you're never going to be this, or you're never going to be that, or you're too much this, or not enough that. So I think I was lucky to have that. And I had a dance teacher that I that I grew up with. I grew up Vaganova. Um, but she was wonderful in that she never said, yes, that was perfect. The highest praise that you could get from her is that was excellent. And mm -hmm. we would count the excellence that came out of her mouth, but she would never <laughs> say that was perfect. And I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but to this day, I never tried, and to the end of my dance career, I never tried to be perfect as a dancer. I just tried to be excellent. And I think that's mm -hmm. such a huge gift that she gave me, whether she knew it or not. Um, that she never was tr striving for perfection from her dancers. So I, mm -hmm. I, I believe that there are a lot of really great teachers out there and there are a lot of harmful teachers out there who probably don't know that they're being harmful. I think there are very few teachers in the dance world who are actively trying to harm children. Mm -hmm. I think most of them are trying to empower them. I hate that word, but uh, make them great dancers. So I think they just don't understand or are have inherited generational abuse themselves and are just passing it down because that's what they know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think especially in ballet, that tends to be the place where I hear more stories or have had my own experiences of things that were said by dance teachers or just in the space. Maybe it was even, you know, if there were parents helping out during costume fittings or, mm -hmm. you know, who knows what all, all the different opportunities, things backstage, folks who are helping backstage and saying something um, and not realizing how much 
even an individual word can matter, like that difference of perfect versus excellent for you. Yeah. It's it's such a simple, like it's that's a single word that are very similar to one another, but have very different uh connotations and meaning when you're on the receiving end of it. Yeah. It's very true. And I and I think that not a lot of teachers stop and inspect when at least when they first start how they're teaching and what the words are that are coming out of their mouth. I certainly didn't when I first started teaching ballet. When I was teaching Pilates, totally different because I had, that was how I was trained, right? But when I was teaching ballet, it was just me walking into a studio because someone asked me if I would teach a ballet class. There was no process of training that I went through for it. And as I was teaching, I heard something come out of my mouth and I was like, wait, do I mean that? Mm. Or is that just what I have had people say to me so much that now that's what I say? And that made me start to really look at who do I want to be as a teacher and what do I want to say and how do I want these dancers to leave the class? What do I, how do I want them to feel? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it's more important that they are um, happy, healthy, excellent humans than excellent dancers. Like that's, that's my first <laughs> non-negotiable. Yeah. And then if I can bring them to a level of excellence as a dancer also, that's great. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about that, one thing that also came to mind, and I don't remember where I originally heard this concept, is say in like competition space, mm -hmm. where sometimes you might hear, you know, that dancer was judged and or scored as blah, blah, blah. And it's the dancer is not getting judged. Their dance is yeah. receiving the score or yeah. something like that. And so even when I'm watching like Dancing with the Stars, which I love watching sometimes <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> somebody say something um and it's like oh nope nope i don't like the way you said that of you mm -hmm. know this dancer is getting scored this way it's the dance that they performed and the score mm -hmm. that they received for that dance at that moment mm -hmm. that's so true and and being told you know as a professional dancer um we don't like you right from a company of course which most people will not say but they'll say uh, we don't have a place for you in this company. And so mm -hmm. companies are learning. We think you're a great dancer. We just don't have a place for you rather than you're not the right body type or which of course usually translates into one thing. Or um, they'll say your, your standard is just not where it should be. Mm -hmm. Like give them feedback, but don't just throw something blanket out there, right? Like if my, if my mm -hmm. standard of isn't there, what, what do I need to work on? Pirouettes, jumps, turnout, like what? what needs to change. Um, and so hopefully companies are starting to make, um, do a better job of that uh, and giving actual feedback to dancers. My dancers who have gone through the past couple of years, um, post pandemic through audition season are starting to get feedback from dance companies, but the dance companies are also kind of hiding behind that. You're just not the right look for us. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, when you look at the company and they all have one color of skin, my Hispanic dancer is like, that's that's what they mean. Like, I get mm -hmm. that, you know. So, um, so the words can change, but sometimes the intention does not. Um, which again is one of the things we're trying to fix. <laughs> exactly, chipping away little by little, <laughs> little by little. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the work that you do with dancers through Pilates, mm -hmm. whether it is providing some of that training outside of the dance studio or working on some of the coaching and whatnot that you do with them. Just mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. 
Um, well, I really love my job. <laughs> I love working with dancers. Uh, and a lot of times a dancer will come to me, it's, it's pretty much 100% through referrals. So they'll say, so-and-so told me they work with you and they really love it. I'm having this issue is usually how someone comes in. I'm having this issue and um, I was hoping you could help me. And sometimes I'm the first stop on the way to PT and they just don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'll do an intake with them and be like, hey, I see what the issue is. Um, I can work on this with you because usually it's not a, a traumatic injury, right? Most dance mm -hmm. injuries are, are cumulative. Um, usually it's, you know, my calf has been hurting for six weeks. Well, let's talk about that. What's your plie look like? What's your relevé look like? Um, and I'll say, hey, we can work on this and we can change it. Um, but that's me mowing the lawn with scissors. And if you want to mow the lawn faster, let's get you into PT. They can mm -hmm. do a lot of stuff that I can't. And also we can work on the things that we can work on together to start changing it. So sometimes dancers will come to me and I'll try to get them into PT pretty fast. Sometimes they'll come to me and I'll be like, hey, I feel like we caught it pretty early. Let's work on whatever this is. Or they'll come and say, I want to get my arabesque higher or I want to level up. I'm a, I'm a demi-soloist. I want to be a soloist next year. And so we'll look at what their strengths are and what their weaknesses, and we'll start to try to figure out what are those weaknesses, why are those weaknesses there, and what do we need to change. So we'll start strengthening trunk, or we'll figure out what they're not doing um, optimally with a standing leg when they're trying to do pirouettes or adagio or whatever it is, and we'll start training for those specific things. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we'll do like a full body, all over general workout, but usually not with me. Usually it's a Let's target whatever's going on and let's address that. So if they're working on um, black swan variation, then we're going to be working on what they need to do for those really hard pirouettes into the attitude and all of that stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And just kind of like kind of helping it a little bit, taking what already exists and making it better. So mm -hmm. I love doing that. And sometimes that means we end up in the dance studio and we'll do ballet coaching in there. We'll do a ballet bar or we'll come in and do variation work. Um, or we'll pick apart a solo for a competition and I'll say, oh, I see why you're having trouble with that. Here's where you're cranking into your lower back. Let's work on feeling it this way instead. So mm -hmm. it really overlaps in a very delicious and yummy way for me um, that I get to, to jump in there and help them kind of from both sides. And sometimes they want just ballet coaching and we'll do that. Usually I'll be like, uh, let's drop to the floor and do this one exercise real quick. <laughs> I can't help myself. And then their turns are better or whatever. So um, that's mostly what I do is that one-on-one -on -one work. And I love it. Mm -hmm. And that's such a wonderful sort of spectrum of things that you can work with them on and ways that you can do it. I know I always like having the opportunity, like in my office, I have a little dance floor and bar and some different mm -hmm. things and we'll have them try things there on the floor and show me, okay, do this movement for me, this step that you're saying you're having difficulty with or that's painful and being able to just kind of swing back and forth of like, okay, now we're in technique mode. Okay. Now we have some exercises to be able to work on some of this. And I think that's where so much of the fun ends up happening for me. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's where you get to see that look on their face of, oh my gosh, it just happened. And I wasn't even thinking about this or trying this or worrying about that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the biggest thing they have to do is just trust because it feels weird. We take them to a place where they feel very vulnerable and exposed. And I always tell my dancers when we, when we start, listen, you're, you're a lovely dancer. You do so much right. And you do so much really well. 
we're just not going to focus on those things for the next hour because you already <laughs> do them so well. So mm -hmm. we're going to focus on things that you feel are not as good or not as stable and that you are uncomfortable with. Don't let that leave you with the feeling of I'm a bad dancer. I'm terrible. I can't take correct. Like, don't, don't let that affect you. We're mm -hmm. only working on the stuff that we think we can make a little better. And yeah. if we can go into that and if they can trust, I'm asking them to do weird stuff. And I don't understand what this has to do with pirouettes, but okay. And then we come back and do pirouettes and they're like, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the magic is to me. <laughs> Definitely. I also like it when sometimes, especially with my the kids that come in to work with me, sometimes maybe they're receiving corrections in class in a group setting that can be just kind of a general correction that they feel like they're always getting, but they don't necessarily know what to do with it. Yeah. And so they'll sometimes come in with that of like, okay, they're telling me to engage my core, but what does this mean when I'm standing at the bar? I've tried a million things and none of it seems to be what they're looking for. And getting to kind of problem solve and help them access those different pieces can be really fun too. Yeah. Yeah. It, helping them and sometimes dance teachers throw out a correction that's always really worked well for themselves um, and then and then keep going because they have 29 other kids in the class, which is understandable. But that correction may not make sense to that dancer. And so helping that dancer figure out what that correction is trying to achieve and then getting them to achieve it in their body. Um, and then they go back to class and the teacher's like, wow, that was great. Thanks for listening and taking that correction to heart. You know, so everybody's happy, everybody mm -hmm. wins, and they start to understand a little bit more about their body and how to how to have some autonomy over what's happening and how they can move forward as a dancer. Yeah. I think that goes into another really important idea of helping dancers understand their body and how they need to support their body, whether it's in the ways that they're training it, in the way that they're fueling it through nutrition and hydration and that sort of thing, all of the different elements that we have as a human person and making sure that we're supporting all of the different pieces to then support them as the performer and the artist that they are. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, <clears throat> that's something that I have seen a lot with uh, physical therapists is that PTs are the front line, right, for physical health a lot of times and mental health a lot of times. You know, dancers will get in there and just start talking because you're on their side and um, they don't always feel like they have that. And, and many times I, I'm the front line as well. I'm not a physical therapist, just a reminder to everybody. Um, but dancers will come see me not even knowing they might need a physical therapist or they'll come see me because they can't figure out what they're not getting from their ballet teacher. So I'm the translator or the, the, the bridge gap, the gap bridger. Um, and then those other things will start to come up, mental health issues. How are they fueling? How are they drinking? I know that they need to go to physical therapy. They don't want to think about that. They don't want to acknowledge that. Or the parents are like, no, no, they're just faking it or, or whatever is mm -hmm. happening there. And it can be really overwhelming to be that one person that has to be all the things. And I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to, to stay in your lane, which I firmly, firmly believe for myself, and also be enough of a mentor to get them to the point where they're, they're willing to 
go find those people and have those conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the most valuable things that I do, I think one of the most valuable parts of my business is having that Rolodex, that contact list of people to refer out to and getting them to have enough trust in me and the process that when I say, I think you need to go to a CAPT, here's two great names. I have always found it really helpful at this point to get some input from a dietitian. Here's a couple of great people that work with dancers, yada, yada, right? And they mm -hmm. feel like if I trust them, they'll trust them. And then they start to hear things from the actual professional or, hey, I love that you talked to me about it. Let's find someone who can, can help you with this and give you some tools with whatever you're struggling with mentally. Well, let's go yeah. find you some mental health support. So having being that that first touch point for a lot of dancers is a big responsibility. Um, I don't take it lightly. And also I build up my contact list just for that reason, because I mm -hmm. want them to get into the best hands for whatever it is they need help with. And that is, that is something that I think in order to truly be a, a, resource and somebody involved in this community is mm -hmm. not only making sure that you're in that space to be able to be the person that they trust, but that you're also doing the work to build your Rolodex to get education on these different things. Because part of it also, especially when you're that like first person that they're coming to see, I, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a physician. I'm not a million other things. I'm a physical therapist, but I need to know enough about what other professions there are, how they can support the dancer, what their role is, when to get them involved, some of those different things. And so pursuing some of that education and exposure for myself is super important so that I can help that dancer get to the right person for the right problem and not just sort of say, well, this is beyond what I can help you with. You should go see someone. Go Google it. <laughs> I don't know how to help you from that point. Exactly. Well, and you know, that's where uh, we, we both met, I'm pretty sure through I Adams, maybe it was the dance, but I think it was I Adams. Um, that's where it's so important to have that that connection and that touch point. And, and I blatantly use my friends all the time and I'll mm -hmm. post, Hey, I need someone in this city. Does anybody know anyone? Or I need someone over here. Does anybody know of a good so-and-so? Um, yeah. and, and I know that you do the work to get out there as well. So that when your dancer says, I need a technique coach, it's awkward. I can't go to this studio because of these, you know, you're like, I know someone who can probably help us find someone if you don't already know someone yourself. And, and that is, um, that's what makes you so valuable to your dancers as well. One of the things that I've enjoyed incorporating into all of it too, is just another opportunity to build the network and, and different touch points is, you know, I still am a dancer. I mm -hmm. still go and take classes at studios. I like this week, I'm planning to go take a tap class at one of the studios and that kind of thing. And just get to know the dance teachers, the studio owners. And a lot of times in the adult classes at these studios, parents of the dancers are taking the class. And so, you know, just getting to know some of them. And so then when questions are coming up from dancers that I'm seeing from that studio, I also kind of know how the studio operates, what their teachers are like, what their culture is like, and that sort of thing, and kind of go, okay, maybe this particular studio has a spot that could use mm -hmm. a little shoring mm -hmm. up. I know I need to maybe refer this dancer a little 
more readily to somebody else to address some of these other things versus, you know, their studio has a really good balance of everything, super supportive, all of that. Let's let's see what work we can do and then pull people in kind of as we need it. Um, but getting to know the studios and teachers and studio owners is also a really important part of being a part of the community. Absolutely. And I think that's so great. I love that you still dance and you still compete, girl. I mean, like you like do all the things. <laughs> and I still take class. Um, you know, I used to take class at, at Steps on, on Broadway, New York. And now that they Zoom, I still take class. So I still get to go and take class, you know, in my room. Um, mm -hmm. But continuing to take class keeps my brain flexible and I will take a combination that I learned be like that was great what did I love about it and then take it and teach it to a, one of my ballet classes so mm -hmm. it, it does challenge a different part of your brain but even if you're not a dancer or you don't still dance uh, there are still ways you can get plugged into the community I go see yeah. most of my dancers performances and the fact that I show up brings them so much joy, brings their parents so much joy. Um, or my professional dancers, you know, if they're doing something that's live streaming, I'll watch it and I'll send them, oh my gosh, when you did this, that was so fantastic. Um, it's so important to be a part of that and for the dancers mm -hmm. to feel like you are invested in their lives because we are. We're Definitely. so invested in their lives. <laughs> uh, and then friends, I have friends who do... Um, uh, you know, like physical screens as physical therapists, they'll just go to a dance studio and say, hey, could I come in and do a physical screen? And then they'll get to know the, the studio owners, they'll get to know the dancers. And they're like, wait, what? Who are you? We've never heard of this. This is fantastic. Um, and mm -hmm. just making an effort to, to dig in and be part of the community, I think is so helpful. Because as we said, it's all about building that trust and getting the dance studio owners to trust us and getting the company directors to trust us and getting the dancers and the parents to trust us. Because um, mm -hmm. then we can do our job more easily. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is when I go take a dance class or something like that in the community, I'll wear obnoxious PT t-shirts. Um, <laughs> like I have one that looks like a Superman logo, but it's PT, or I have Doctors for Dancer shirts. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, shirts from some of the different organizations that I'm a part of, but I'm usually wearing one of those shirts when I take a class. And I never go in and say, you know, like I'm a physical therapist who is here taking a class. Like you should we should talk. Um, but I just, I show up enough times and I have enough of these shirts on. Eventually somebody's like, okay, can you tell me what this shirt thing is about? And then I'll tell them, yeah, I'm a dancer who happens to be a physical therapist. And then, you know, conversation flows from there. Mm. Um, but just get it another way of building trust with a community of, see, I am, I am part of this myself also just as a dancer. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, I love collecting all of my different shirts. <laughs> I love that. Um, let's see. What are maybe some things that you think are key things for dancers to consider when they're thinking about like how they're supporting their body, how they're choosing training um, outside of the dance studio? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Uh, key things are find somebody who understands what dancers need, right? Um, whether it's a strength coach or a Pilates trainer or a gyro trainer or whoever it is that you find that understands dancers, I feel like that's the place to start. Um, 
I, I think strength training should be a part of every dancer's life. I am not a strength coach, but I will start working with them and encourage them towards a strength coach um, because I think it's so important. Uh, but you definitely want to find someone who understands the load that dancers already struggle with in, in rehearsals and performances and is going to respect mm -hmm. that. Uh, I think that whatever you do outside of dance as physically should be in service of making you a better dancer. So I don't think you need to work to run a marathon if that's not making you a better dancer on stage. If that's making you exhausted and worn out and you're like, but I really need to be strong and, you know, don't do it. But if it's making you better on stage, if it's not exhausting you, great, train to run a marathon. Um, so find someone who understands the load uh, and the needs. Um, don't do things just for the sake of doing them, just to be cool, right? Make sure that mm -hmm. if everything is in service, making you a better dancer. So your workouts should be efficient. They shouldn't be hugely long. You don't have to train five days a week. Um, and you want to do something that is going to complement dance, but not mimic dance. When I say complement, I don't mean look similar to dance. Um, you want something that is going to make you a better dancer, but it, it's not going to look like dance movement. So mm -hmm. if we do a, a ballet bar with weights on, that's not going to be enough. And in fact, I don't love that idea anyway. So we want to find something like good old fashioned strength training or Pilates from someone who understands what dancers need to add into that. Um, and we want to do it efficiently and well. And you want to also understand that your rest is more important than maintaining that rigorous schedule. So dancers can become a little inflexible mentally <laughs> and mm -hmm. feel like almost this superstitious, if I do this, this, and this, and this every week, I'm gonna be a better dancer. But understanding some weeks you're gonna have to take time off or I'll have dancers walk in to work with me and I see they are exhausted and wiped out. And I'm like, we're doing a release and rollout session today. If you don't like it, you can just go home now <laughs> because mm -hmm. that's all your body can do. Um, and so it's really important to, to understand that we want you to be stronger. We want you to be healthier, but no one who is helping you should have any sort of ego about look what I have produced or um, my dancer can bench 300 pounds. I don't even know if that's a lot. For, I'm assuming that's a lot for dancers, but my dancer <laughs> can bench 300 pounds or look at how I have shaped them physically. Like that's, you don't need an ego like that in the room. You need somebody who's going to say, how can I help you be the healthiest, uh, most efficient, uh, most excellent artistic version of yourself? And that's, mm -hmm. that's who you're going to work with. Trust them with the schedule. Less is probably going to be more if it's good. So mm -hmm. those, those would be the highlights I would say. What would you add? Oh, I love all of those. I think, I think another element to all of that is finding someone who is willing to listen and dig deeper mm. on all of it too. Because Absolutely. sometimes it's, you know, like we were saying earlier, sometimes I'm the one who a dancer is opening up to because we're spending big chunks of time together and we're talking about a lot of different things and they'll start bringing things up. And it's like, you know, oh, I'm here to also hear you mm -hmm. and be a sounding board and see how I can support. It's not just like, mm, that's not important for what we're talking about today or, you know, nope, this is our focus. Like save that for another time. Talk to somebody else about it. Um, but being willing to be that listening ear. Um, because I think sometimes, and, and this is changing, but I think, you know, historically, sometimes it's just sort of a, 
you are expected to be perfect and have a certain persona and way that you, you, you portray yourself to the world and that sort of thing. And whatever you're dealing with, that's your own thing. Um, but having the opportunity to open up about that stuff is so important. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that gets back to us making that space, right, where people trust us. So finding someone you trust and, um, and feel like you can talk to. And I definitely have dancers float test balloons with me uh, of questions that I know they're trying to see if I'm willing to go somewhere with this or if I'm just gonna like shove the balloon to the side and keep going with where we're going. And, um, and I, I listen and ask more questions or tell a story about myself that may just happen to parallel what they're floating a test balloon about, right? Mm -hmm. um, or I have a friend who, you know, uh, and those can lead to some pretty deep and hard conversations or even just admitting I hurt all over. I don't think I can do this anymore. Okay, well, let's talk about that instead of trying to just patch up your ankle. Let's like, let's let's dig deep into that. Um, let's get you someone to talk to, and let's do what we can do to just make you feel good physically and set the ankle aside for a second. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. Someone who is willing to listen and dig deeper. Mm -hmm. I think at this point, it's a great opportunity for a special segment on each episode. So every episode we have the final bow. Basically, it is your take home message for the audience. We talk about a lot of different topics. We have a lot of different folks who might be listening, but what is one thing that you hope somebody walks away with? Gosh, <laughs> if I thought it was easy to do one thing, it would have been a much shorter discussion <laughs> because we've talked about so much. Um, what do I want someone to walk home with? Uh, I want someone to walk away understanding that it is okay to be your authentic self as a dancer and to not try to be something that you're not because your authentic self is really what the audience wants to see. And if you are a, a director or dance teacher or support staff in any other way, that's our job is to support dancers and help them to be their authentic selves, as excellent as they can be, um, but to help them be their authentic selves and not some cookie cutter version of what we think that they should be. I love that. Last and certainly not least, we have the shameless plug. So this is your opportunity to promote anything that you have going on, whether it's something you have going on personally, one of the organizations that you work with, anything that you'd like to share with the audience, this is your opportunity. Wow. Um, well, I don't have anything specific coming up super soon. Um, I will be teaching in Houston in January uh, out of Houston Ballet. Um, and I would encourage everybody to follow Dance Medicine Education Initiative because I've got a couple workshops coming up with them in 2024. And I encourage all dancers and dance educators and all of that to join IADAMS um, because they are a fantastic organization and resource as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are Bendy or work with Bendy dancers, please follow Bendy Bodies. I think it's Bendy underscore bodies on Instagram. And please follow me at Jennifer period Milner at Instagram or uh, Jennifer hyphen Milner um, 
on the internet for my website. And you can reach me through either one of those and I will answer any questions or, or DMs that come through. Wonderful. And I'll make sure that all of those are also linked in information that is going out with this episode to make it even easier for them to be able to connect with you. Excellent. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure getting to chat with you. Um, and I'll see you at the next dance medicine event. I know. Um, thank you so much for having me on. I really love that you are doing this podcast and, and getting so much great information out there. So thank you for inviting me and I look forward to seeing you in person again. <laughs> yeah. Dance Med Spotlight is hosted and produced by Alyssa Arms. We discuss all things dance medicine. This has been another episode from Dance Med Spotlight. The Dance Met Spotlight is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.